Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome to episode 165 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This show today is with Pete Hellier. You can find him on Twitter, Twitter even, P-J-H-E-L-L-I-R. Tell you more about Pete in a moment. Happy New Year. Welcome to the show. If you're new, thank you so much for being a part of it. This show is brought to you by... Many, many people just like yourself who have pledged five bucks a month to help keep this show coming to your phone each and every month. For as little as five bucks a month, you can get a warm feeling in your tummy, maybe even some exclusive episodes in your phone. Uh, yeah, people who donate at least five bucks uh, will pledge at least five bucks a month, get access to an exclusive podcast feed that uh, ex- contains podcasts that only they get to hear. But thank you very much to everyone who does support on Patreon, patreon.com slash osher p-a-t-r-e-o-n slash o-s-h-e-r it's an enormous help i would not have been able to bring last year's shows to you were it not for the support of patreon and the same goes for this year without you i can't pay andy ma my producer to make the show and i can't pay Haley van spania my fantastic fantastic production coordinator who helps me get all the interviews organized so between the two of those people um i like to pay them what they're worth and the people at patreon helped me come somewhat close to that Uh, i hope your new year was great i uh i got married i don't know if you might have seen that but i got married and yes to the keen-eyed observers on instagram who do listen to this show i got married barefoot as i promised you i would i even was able to borrow from amy uh will anderson's beautiful partner amy who uh did a wonderful job dressing our little chapel in the middle of luca trees um Amy was kind enough to lend me this candle she had burning in her tent, but I was able to get this beautiful smell happening as well. So I stood there with my feet in the dirt 
and the grass and the smell in my nose and it really really helped me get present to the moment if you if this is the first time you've heard this show um hi i'm osher i'm a sometimes a bloke on your tv and uh i live with a brain that's different from other people's brains i uh have a somewhat of a, a smattering of OCD, somewhat of a smattering of generalised anxiety, somewhat of a smattering of uh, social phobia, a few bunch, a bunch of interesting things. At one point, my brain did pop and uh, stopped working properly altogether and I spent about a, a year or so on meds coming back from that. And now things are mostly good. I medicate every day and I try to manage what's going on. But all these things would have brought a uh, context to why I got married barefoot because what happens in a stressful situation is that I, um, unknowing to me and un sometimes uncontrollably to me, I kind of disappear and um, observe rather than experience a moment. And it was super important to me that I was there in the moment. And for the most part, I was, and I was very grateful to do that. I'm looking forward to seeing the video because there's a couple of times when I grab both of Audrey's hands just kind of holding on for dear life, trying to make sure that I can stay there. And, uh, yeah, it was really lovely. It was great to have a couple of days out in the bush with everyone and, you know, just be a part of what is this incredible, incredible land that, that we live in and this incredible country that we live on. Um, I uh, was able to read some vows not only to Audrey but to Georgia as well. Uh, who is now officially my stepdaughter. It's pretty awesome. And uh, later in the, in the night, she gave a speech that, oh, it's just it was so wonderful to hear. She's a, she's, a, she's a good kid and it was a really nice, nice couple of days. I wish you could have all been there, but frankly, I couldn't afford the catering. Um, I'm recording this on a Saturday. I'm in Bribie Island, which is a small kind of, island off the you can get it to it by a bridge so it is an island but you drive over a bridge to get here it's off the off the edge of brisbane um some people call it god's waiting room it's not really well it can be parts of it uh but um my in-laws live here so we're out here for the weekend and i uh slept in today which was nice but then i woke up and just checked twitter just to make sure the world didn't end not today but we are moving into very interesting times my friends, very, very interesting times. So I think the most important thing as we move forward into this Trumpian era of global politics where all over the world strong men are getting elected because, um, well, for various reasons, economic threats, white privilege threats. But, you know, we seem to be around the world electing strong white men or, you know, just strong law and order kind of, punchy, beady-uppy, aggression kind of guys to lead countries because everyone's kind of afraid as to what's going to happen next. So I think we're in the last stage of that. So we'll see what happens over the next couple of years. It could be interesting. But if you're anything like me, at first you kind of despair that you can't influence global politics. Of course I can't. I'm just a guy. Um, but then you think about what it is you can influence and it really does start with you. It starts with your community, it starts with the people around you, it starts with connecting with the people around you, knowing your neighbours' names, um, organising amongst you and your neighbourhood because that's really, really, really where this stuff starts. That is where this stuff starts. Uh, so while it is a little hard to change the global world that we live in, we can change the world that we immediately live in and... Um, this week offers us all a great opportunity to change 
a big part of the world that we live in for many, many people that live in our community. And I'm talking about the Indigenous Australians uh, here in our community. Because I can't influence a culture of systemic racism and xenophobia in the States, but I can do my part to try and influence the culture of systemic racism and xenophobia here in Australia. And, um, you know, little things like a former guest on this podcast, Paul Middleditch, did that extraordinary lamb ad where, you know, talked about the boat people and quite historically accurately got the fact that Dutch were here first. Nice. Good one, Paul. Uh, there's little things we can do and... Um, one of those things is know your history. What you got taught in school isn't really what happened. Um, I would recommend listening to another podcast guest, David Hunt. Listen to his uh, either his podcast, Rum Rebels and Ratbags, that he did with Dom Knight, or read either of his books, Gert or True Gert. I'm uh, halfway through, almost finished actually, True Gert at the moment. And what we got taught at school in Australia, or certainly what I got taught growing up in Queensland in the 70s and 80s, uh, is not at all close to what actually happened. And um, this week, as happened last year, this week we have, uh, we have the 26th of January, which is Australia Day in uh, our country which is, people like to say it's like the 4th of July, but it's the 4th of July combined with Columbus Day. So in the same way that Native American or First Nation Americans uh, mourn on Columbus Day, um, our Indigenous Australians mourn on Australia Day, but at the same time there's fireworks going off and people with flags as capes and people getting upset that they're not happy. Why aren't you fucking happy? Fucking love it or leave. Eh, oldest continuous living culture on earth. I think they're going to stay. Uh, so it's a little like that. It's a little like celebrating the day that the European that showed up and destroyed your culture is here, but also celebrating that this nation got founded out of it. Isn't that great? Because I believe this nation is fantastic. I believe it's so fantastic. I became an Australian citizen in 1999. I love this country. I love what this country is. I love this what this country can be. And uh, I'm all for um, celebrating federation, April, uh, January the 1st, that gives us a three-day long weekend, four-day long weekend, including New Year's Eve. Um, I think that'll be a fantastic day because uh, January 1st, 1901 is when we became a country. And doing our best to try and understand of what our uh, Aboriginal Australian brothers and sisters f feel on those days. And um, reading the Henry Reynolds book, Beyond the Frontier, might be a heavy place to start. But I would say then go to a David Hunt's Gert or True Gert and just read up a bit um, about, about, you know, what actually happened so we can be in this country. Um, look, I'll just say this. After I read Beyond the Frontier and Gert from David Hunt, it's like you can't unknow it. Like once you take that pill in the Matrix, once you know what happened to make our country what it is. It's like, I can't go back to having barbecues on Australia Day. And so that's why, like last year, I will be at the Queensland Government House for the demonstration and the march that happens on the 26th of January. Um, I'd love you to join me. I think I might be on my fold-up bike. Um, but yeah. I'll be there 
and come and say hey um i'd love to get to know you if you're there let's go have a chat um it'll be a warm day bring water um but it'll be a good day so yeah come and say hi as peter garrett would say i'll see you at the demo <laughs> but i'm looking forward to it but in the meantime i hope you get some reading in and uh, i know it's uncomfortable to know history but i think in my opinion the sooner that we recognize um that history the sooner we try and have some act of contrition for that history the sooner we as a whole nation can progress forward um without the shortest of shuffling of feet and dropping our eyes when we think about what actually happened oh crikey anyway you listen you tuned in to listen to peter hellier who's a very funny man and i've been crapping on and getting you all dirgy and mired sorry about that um, let me tell you about my guest today. I'm stoked that I have this guest for you. Peter Hellier is an Australian comedian best known as the guy making you laugh at the end of the desk on the project, the nightly news program on Channel 10 here in Australia. Peter's a comedian. He's also a producer, a director, a writer and an actor. He is a mad football fan, a loving and devoted father someone who's worked very, very hard to be where he is. He's a great bloke and um, I was really flattered with how much he actually um, pushed for this podcast to happen. Uh, he's one of the busiest guys there is and he was hitting me up on Twitter every time he saw me. He'd be like, Matt, when are we doing that podcast? When are we doing that podcast? So I was really stoked that Pete was so keen to come and do the show. He's a very funny man. He's a very clever man as funny people usually are, they were usually very, very smart. And Peter Hellier is no, no exception to that. He, as I said, one of the busiest people on the planet. So to get him for as long as I got him in Sydney, when he was in Sydney on a press day, uh, he made time to come and see me. And uh, it was freaking fantastic. I think it was like the last one I recorded at my old place at Bondi. We don't live there anymore. So that's the last time that we did that at my house over there. Well, our house, I should say. Uh, so enjoy this conversation. Uh, with Peter Hellier. Find him on Twitter at P-J-H-E-L-L-I-A-R. Let him know you heard him here. Enjoy the chat. All right, I'm rolling. So no. you've had your chocolate, have your pretend wedding cake, the vegan. The vegan wedding cake. And uh, I I was asked if I wanted a, a slice of, I wasn't told it was wedding cake originally. I just said, would you like a slice of vegan cake? And... I perhaps judged in my own head and I went, no, I'm okay. And I went, no, actually, I will have a, a, a slither. And then it came out and it looked nothing like I thought the vegan cake would look like. And it was very fancy. And then I was told it was a wedding cake and I think you're in good hands. I think the wedding cake's going to be a hit. What did you think the vegan cake was going to look like? Like a piece of broccoli <laughs> with some icing like on top? Brown, like brown bread. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, 80-day-old brown bread. <laughs> yeah, it's crumbling. Oh, Audrey's, um, we're still considering if Audrey's going to actually bake our wedding cake. Well, based on that, you know. It's pretty good. Taste-wise, I mean, you know, I'm not sure if Audrey can do all the fancy kind of things you need, the sculpting of a of a cake and the, the lays and the tears. Of course she can. I'm sure she can. Um, yeah. Of course she can. <laughs> it's just that the carving of the little mini figurines of the, the two figurines. of us. You may have to outsource. Yeah. The carving of the figurines. As long as I'm made of just a pure marzipan. <laughs> 
How good is marzipan? So I can just dissolve on someone's tongue. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be wild. We've had a great morning. We've been mm. at the Upfronts, which is basically um, the, the, the network's pitch to the client saying, hey, everyone, remember how awesome our stuff was this year? Mm. Now's your opportunity to buy advertising for next year. Special price to be by now. They used to be called this launches uh, and then – you know, the, in, in America, they are, there's a big tradition, long tradition of them you know, being called upfronts, and that's where they, they're usually held in New York, and, mm-hmm. and they're usually basically all held at the same time, as they are here in Australia. Um, um, and Jerry Seinfeld would, like, host the NBC one, and I'll bring out, you know, Jimmy Fallon to do, a, you know, a spot, and, and they're massive, and, and um, these are, like, a, a smaller scale of those, obviously. But, uh, yeah, I thought it was pretty good. There was less... Venn diagrams and, and graphs and pie charts than there usually mm. are, uh, which was good this morning. And um, the good thing about what Channel 10, I think, are releasing next year is that there's a few new, sh- new shows, not as many as other years, which means that the shows that are on the network are working, which yeah. is, I think, reflected in the rating. Sorry. I, 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 no, it's fine. I, I, feel like, I feel like I've drunk the Kool-Aid. <laughs> no, no, no. It's fine. I've, I've been to some upfronts before and you sit there and you notice that your show isn't in the real. <laughs> that has happened. Well, I was chatting to Ian Meadows before we went in from the uh, – Ian's a great guy and he's, he works on The Wrong Girl. Um, and uh, he – I said, oh, is, is The Wrong Girl coming back? And he goes, well, I hope so. I haven't heard, but I assume they would have invited me here if it wasn't. <laughs> I said, yeah, you would hope so. And uh, they did announce that The Wrong Girl was coming back for a second season, which is great. Yeah. Uh, but – yeah, I, 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 I mean, I knew, I knew the project's going to be on next year, so I was, I was in safe. Yeah, I felt pretty safe, but uh, I'm glad for Ian. I went to the 2009 upfronts in Melbourne. Uh, they were at some dock somewhere. It's big, fancy, like where they have Fashion Week events and stuff like that. And I sat there, and the only vision, the only mention Australian Idol got was in a compilation of how great 2009 had been. And I think we ended up in like some sort of montage of all the video that came together to make the shape of the network logo. And we were just one of the bricks that went into that. <laughs> and that was it. And I thought, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. Was, they brought me here to, just yeah. to see the brick. Yeah. That's it. And we didn't come back. Because yeah, how many years did Idol go for? Seven. Seven years, which is a great run. I mean, you know, seven years is a great run. Yeah. Um, uh, and then it. Did it come back after a year off? Nope. It didn't come back at all. Nope. No, it was gone. They just had that change of judges and stuff like yeah, that. One, yeah, in the last year and then, yeah, it was over. Yeah. It was over after that. And were you, at the time, were you happy or were you like kind of ready for a break or were you like, no, nah, I'd still love oh, doing this show? I would have done it forever. Yeah. I would have done it forever. But when you've got a show like that, the trick is like with anything and you would have done it, seen it on the project, is that you just have to kind of keep changing. You yeah. can't give them the same thing every time because you want to still kind of surprise people. I mean, you'd know the same from stand-up. You can, I mean, unless you're Stephen Wright and you do the same 20 minutes for 20 years, mm. which he did mm. uh, before YouTube, um, <laughs> you've got to keep writing. You know, you've, yeah. got to keep, you've got to keep keep writing. And you, and you should want to do that. You yeah. should like, I don't know why anyone would get into this business and particularly stand-up not want to keep writing because mm. you, you're always chasing, you know, the tail of the beast in a way. Like you, you never think you've done the perfect show. Um, the next one's always the best show, you know. And uh, like right now I'm in a position where I, I just I did the biggest tour I've done in, in a while, a show called One Hot Mess, and it was great. Um, 
one of my favourite shows, and I'm decided I'm only going to do every two years because I need the world to change a little bit. I need me to evolve a little bit. Um, so I just don't produce the same the same show. And yeah. I did a few shows back to back where I just they were all I think really good shows. They were, they were funny, um, but I just felt. I was covering the same ground. Mm-hmm. And to the untrained eye, you might come, you may have come to the new show and kind of gone, well, he's not tackling anything drastically different, but it's more the, the process and how I went about writing the material. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything was, came from a quite an honest place. I think always my comedy's always come from a pretty honest place. Um, there was a routine I did about um, how women's brains work. And it sounds and 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 this is the best reviewed show I've ever done. Like this, like the, the reviews were amazing, and and I you know I do tend to read reviews, um, good and bad. Um, and the one bad review I got kind of had a go at this routine that I did, and kind of said it was a bit retrograde, you know, male female, blah blah blah. And the thing they kind of, in a way, don't couldn't have got was that the routine actually came from a very honest conversation I had with my wife. You know, I you know we're trying to work out why I don't some why sometimes I drift off and why sometimes she gets things that are more important to her than they are for me and and you know and she kind of explains to me goes this is how women's brains work they, we worry about everything we worry about stuff that concerns us stuff that kind of concerns us and shit that has nothing to do with us and I kind of it actually genuinely helped it genuinely helped our marriage because I was like okay. I understand. I understand that. So when you do come to me, worrying about somebody else's problems, and you're taking them on as your own problems, I can see that that's just not, you know, um, you're not just making that concern up. You are actually concerned. That's how your, your brain's. Mm. It's not a choice even you've made. It's mm. you're, you're, you're wired that way, as opposed to just kind of going, "Why is she on about this shit?" And so uh, you know, I, I developed a routine uh, based on that, and it's. I think as, as long as it comes from a moment, of, you know, a point of truth, and there's almost like a thesis point at the start of every you know, routine that I do. Is like this is what this routine's about. Mm. Um, that it's, I think it works. Um, you know, um, uh, but yeah, but get, I think you should always want to be w- w- thinking about what's next, and mm. and you want to write and develop. I mean, that's mm. ex- for me, growing up, the most exciting thing was a blank bit of paper. You know, and just going, you know, what, when am I going to put on this piece of paper? Right. You know. Well, what what you just said is the sort. Of, I mean, that's the sort of stuff that Audrey and I talk about all the time. Right. Yeah. 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 Because like, I do certainly drift off, and I do, and it's terrible because I've, I minimise things that Audrey's concerned about. So, and so as I would justify by going, well, it's in my profession, I'm often going off and drifting off and thinking about stories or yeah. characters or jokes. But what ideas. If, if this over here combined with that down there. Yeah. Sometimes I'm in the moment going, maybe this could be a scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And so I've learnt based on that, I think I kind of learnt to be more in the moment. Yeah. And I can worry about what, you know, how that might be a scene later on. Or... Yeah. <laughs> when did you first, do you remember writing your first joke? Do you remember coming up with your first joke? When you got, got a laugh out of someone that, hang on, no one told me that I'm not repeating a joke for someone else? I remember, not necessarily a joke. I remember um, in grade two, I wrote a sentence, <laughs> E.T. is a very popular movie, full stop. And the teacher said to me, that's excellent use of the word popular. And I thought, oh, cool, I'm a good writer. 
like, <laughs> it's such an innocuous, it was such an innocuous sentence. And I, like my kids would have written that sentence in prep, I reckon, uh, you know. Um, but I, it, it just kind of, it made me kind of think, oh, maybe I'm a, maybe I can write. And then I would, um, I wrote a, uh, it was on a big, big bit of white cardboard and I did like you know, a big kind of bubble kind of, you know, bubble kind of uh, heading in different colour textures, a story called um, Parents Only. And it was, um, it was something like, um, um, I wanted to eat some of the cake in the fridge, but mum said, no, parents only. And I wanted to do this, and no, parents only. I wanted to drive the car, no, parents only. And then the twist was at the end, it was like, mum, and then mum said she wanted to ride my bike, and I was like, nah. Kids only. <laughs> and, and the teacher read it in front of the class. Or she got me to read it in front of the class. And everyone laughed. Uh, and again, it was just a light bulb moment of yeah. like, ah, oh, yeah. the stories are cool. So then I would write these stories uh, and I've got them. And I got them out recently and I read them to a, um, I've actually just written a kid's book, which is coming out next year. And I just told the publishing uh, company about this um these books, and they said, oh, can you bring it, if you can find them, can you bring them in? And I brought them in, and they were like Indiana Hallia um, and the the Rackers of the Lost Park. Yeah. Rackers is not even a word. Like, it could have just been Raiders of the Lost Park. You know, you yeah. need to change one word. Um, uh, and it was about me and my mate uh, Michael Stones was his name, so he became Shorty Stones because, you know, short... Um, uh, Shorty was the character in uh, Temple of Doom. Yeah. Um, and uh, then I wrote a series of books called Me, the Sports Star. <laughs> me, it had me winning Wimbledon and me winning, you know, the Masters Golf and, <laughs> and various things and, and uh, winning the Melbourne Cup. And I just, like, really enjoyed it. I remember thinking that people were anticipating <laughs> uh, whether that was in my head or not. But I always got to read the stories out to the class. And it was kind of it was kind of inspiring from international you know? bestseller Tom Clancy and <laughs> Pete Hellier. Well, what was really funny was I I didn't really I had forgotten this, but on the on the when I got them out recently on the covers they had this little emblem and there was like two uh, little squares next to each adjoining next to each other with BB written and and da- written down downwards was like better books. So I had my own label. I like it. I had my <laughs> better books. So. Um, yeah, that was uh, more so than remembering a single joke. I reckon that was the light bulb moments. But when of you get me that first laugh, that's it. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 the first laugh probably would have been somewhere yeah. in there, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, certainly. And then, you know, when I got a bit older, we used to have comedy nights at the, the local footy and cricket club, and comedians would come out, and and I remember I remember thinking like Russell Gilbert would come out. I'm thinking that's oh, geez, I wouldn't mind doing that. And I um I got up and. Um, I started going to see, see some comedy. I saw Greg Fleet at the comedy club and I was like, that's what I want to do. Um, and so the next comedy night they had at the cricket club, I got up and I prepared a route. They had a joke, you know, you could get at the end of it was, you know, I don't know, $50 prize or something. Get up and tell a joke at the end of the night and um, the comedians would judge. And uh, everyone got up and everyone was just doing jokes, you know, jokes they'd heard. Um, and I got up and I'd written a routine. I forget what the routine was about, but um, but I'd written three kind of jokes and three little routines, and it didn't go very well. 
And at, at the end of it, I, I think I was just like, I'm just a kid. Come on. I need the money, you know. And that probably got more of a laugh than anything else. Um, what were you, 14, 15? Yeah, about 15. Wow. And, um, and these are all men, like, you know, like, yeah. um, you know, and drunk. They're not mischievous. <laughs> drunk men, yeah. yeah. And the guy, the guy who won it, Stuart Farrell, um, he won. And Stuart was a funny guy. Uh, but I think, he, from memory, he just he, he's told a joke. And he, but he did say to me, he goes, I like what you did. You actually wrote a routine as opposed to just telling a joke. So, you know, I was encouraged again. But, you know, it's, uh, yeah, these are the little, the little moments. What was high school like? Were you the guy that made trouble or were you the guy that... I was, Jerry Seinfeld once said that he, he wasn't the class clown, he was the class comedian. And I think that's, I think I was the same way. I used to, um, that we had a humanities class where the teacher would... Uh, we had to do oral presentations and she would get me to host like a Tonight Show. It was, it, Tonight Live was on, you know, we were, you know I was yeah. you know, a massive Visard fan. And uh, so I would, in between, people would go up and talk about whatever they were talking about. And then I would say, okay, thanks, uh, thanks Gary. Uh, and now we have on a great kid. Um, he lives in uh, Doreen Crescent. Uh, and you know, do a 30 second ramble and introduce them, you know, Tonight Show style and sitting at the teacher's desk, you know. Um, and the t- I think I knew when the teachers had had enough and it wasn't joke o'clock. And then I, you know, and there were times where I, you know, it was, it was a, a bit iffy. Um, but I got along well with the teachers. I was a pretty popular student. I was vice captain of the school. Um, and I did these productions as well like sketch one I just did off my own bat I yeah. just got a group of friends together and put it on one lunchtime in the theatrette um, and I it was you know, I kind of think back and you go I kind of, who was that kid did you, did you ever do that like sometimes you think back like I went travelling overseas when I was 18 just by myself I was like almost straight out of school and I was like who was, who was that kid that did that <laughs> I can't imagine being that brave like it seems like a really brave thing to do but it didn't at the time but I I did a sketch show which I wrote and I got some friends that, you know, to be in it and help, help with it where I wrote like a play and it was called Tuesday and it was about a detective called Detective Tuesday. He was hired because game show hosts were being murdered. Yeah. Um, like Greg Evans and Larry Ender and a lot of, a lot of these people I know now. Uh, Larry Ender's a good friend. <laughs> um, and, uh, but no, because nobody wanted the, 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 uh, the police didn't want the, and society didn't want the crime solved because I'm quite happy for these game shows being locked up. So they, 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 they hired the worst detective they could find, uh, which is me. Um, and, uh, and this, so, uh, yeah, it went about trying to solve this, um, this case. And there was a scene, blind, perfect match had become blind date in that time. So there was a um, because we didn't have any. Um, there's no girls that we. I went to an all boys school. There's no girls, so I just I said, well, let's just make the we'll make the blind date sketch all guys. It'd just be like a gay blind date. And this is a Christian brother school, so we did it. And you know, admittedly, there were some you know some jokes that wouldn't fly probably now, um, but I still thought it was all quite celebratory, you know. Um, and you know, everybody laughed. Everybody kind of loved it. But I got into a bit of trouble for it because <laughs> the teachers thought it was, um, you know, offensive. <laughs> and so they demanded, we videotaped it and they demanded the tape and we just had to kind of get, like the next day, it was like two days later, they demanded the tape. The principal hat wasn't there, so he, he really wanted, he wanted to see it and we're just like, 
we, we, we taped over it. <laughs> <laughs> we taped over it. Yeah. We've taped we video smash hits. Um, <laughs> and our parents are great because it was me and like my best mate. He kind of got, because he kind of helped out a lot with that. And our parents are great. Our parents just went, you know what? They, they tried something. You know, they, they worked really hard on this. Mm. You know, they um, compared to, because it was for a particular project. I think it was called a communication project. Yeah. And uh, I said, I'm sure compared to what some of the other kids have done, this probably stacks up pretty high. So, you know, I'm sure they're sorry if they offended anyone, but, you know, go, you know, give them, cut them some slack. Two things that really blow me away about what you just told me, which is that happened in, not only in primary school, but also in high school, you had at least two teachers that recognised something in you and gave you permission to do this thing. No, 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 Peter, this is good. You're good at this. Yeah, no, I had, I had, I was really blessed actually to have um, some teachers, particularly in high school. Um, a couple, one was um, the, the, the guy who, who helped me out with the plays was a guy called Mr. Natoli and he married um, Mrs. Natoli. Um, and, uh, and she was also really, really supportive um, of me. We did a story about um, teachers a couple of years ago um, on the project and uh, I got to go back and chat to them and just go say thank you and, and they remember she wrote me a lovely letter when I left you know just saying you know good luck and it's been great watching you you know kind of evolve and and, and all of that and and he I wrote a student newspaper like again that we got in trouble for that we is um, we wrote a, a story that was about the canteen mum giving a, a inappropriate massage to one of the students and um, so we got shut down and you know but it was always like well we're trying something you know like um and I remember I was told that another teacher had said to the principal actually it might have been the campus director the teacher said to the campus director you know Pete might actually end up being working in this field he might, not be, he might end up being a writer or a comic and apparently he scoffed at that and I one was really glad that the teacher kind of stood up for me, and two that you know, um, and two I kind of found it kind of inspiring. I was kind of like, no, nah, I'm gonna I'm gonna show you, ah. I'm gonna show you. And there's another teacher, a political teacher called Mr. Smith, who he had a rule in his class um, in politics. He said, you can all, at any time you can go for a joke. This is for the whole class. I remember saying it was like day one, any time you can yell out a joke, and if it's funny, you get to stay, and if it's not. You're out. So it kind of introduced this kind of you know, quality control, and there were some kids who were always getting sent out. <laughs> you know, no, I didn't get that, I didn't get sent out once. So that was a real. I kind of like. I love that challenge. It probably cost me a career in politics because I kind of was concentrating more on okay, what's the next joke <laughs> and how how can I hone this? Was it joke? a fun class? It was a fun class. He was a really fun teacher. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Um, and uh, yeah, so along the way, I was yeah. really, really well supported and encouraged. Yeah. By how teachers. did you go? I went to an all boys school and I left having no idea how to talk to women at all. Right. Yeah. Like, I was completely like unsocialized when it comes to dealing with anyone that wasn't my mum or a teacher because they were the only women I knew. So you no sisters? No. Okay. Yeah. I've got two sisters. That probably helps. Yeah. Um, I, lo- I love the school I went to. I went to a school called Parade, Parade College. Uh, in Bandura, and I had a great experience. I had uh, a group of mates who went from primary school to the high school, and then met another bunch of guys who kind of uh, integrated into our group as well. And and they're still my circle of friends that I hang out with. So 
forever grateful. Uh, we had a really good year level. Mm. You know, some year levels are just, you speak to some teachers. Some teachers yeah. will go, like, this is the worst year level. You know, yeah. You know, like, you know, um, and but our year levels was, was pretty peaceful. Yeah. You know, there wasn't tension between groups. Um, and, uh, you know, they, yeah, mostly they were encouraging of, you know, letting me do my silly plays and, and speeches. I made a couple of speeches one year. I got in trouble for that because a teacher had um, a little uh, speech impediment uh, and would often say things like, um, I'll break you in uh, I'll, bre- <laughs> I'll break you in one or, and you're, you're skating on, on, uh, on thin water. Um, <laughs> and we really liked him. He was a good teacher, you yeah. know, and, like, we won the, this big footy competition in year 11. And I remember, like, we'll get, we, I think we went back to his place and we're drinking, you know, drinking beers with him, you know. And but I remember he saying on that night, he goes, "What do you want? What do you want? Um, cans or titties?" Doing stubbies or titties? What? Well, it's a different time. You go back to a teacher's house and drink yeah. beer, yeah, underage school students. Yeah, I know. Um, it was, and, and my, I got a yeah, boy who's heading into year nine, and you know look, that did only be two years away. Um, I hope it's not. But, do you um, worry about your, your teenage boy? I, I I do. I worry about all my boys. I don't worry excessively because I, I think he's a he's um he's a good he's a really good boy uh, with a good bunch of friends and they're a bit quirky. They're not yeah. they're not sp- sportos. Uh-huh. Um, uh huh. They they're all a bit left to center. They you know they like making each other laugh. They have got their silly jokes and all that and and. Um, and they're pretty tight, so I'm really glad. Um, my and he doesn't seem like a kid who's chomping at the bit to get the parties. Mm-hmm. I do have a niece who's a bit more into the party world at that same age, um, and um, it freaks my sister and brother-in-law yeah. out. Um, Liam hasn't given us those kinds of headaches yet. Um, my the next boy coming through Aiden. He might be a bit more one that's ch- is chomping at the bit to have a beer. Yeah. Um, so I figure if, I, if we can hold him off for as long as um, we can, but we can get to... I mean, Liam's 15 next year. Um, I'm 99.9% sure he hasn't had a drink. Um, if we can get him to closer to 16... I think that's pretty good these days. Yeah. That's a pretty major win. Yeah. I mean, I went to my first pub when I was 15. Yeah. Dan O'Connell in, um, in Melbourne with my brother and my best mate. And, uh, yeah, to, to think that he is so close, you know, yeah. he's 14 and a half. Um, it's weird. What kind of drinking was your teenage drinking? Binge beer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, like... More spirits when we started going to pubs and nightclubs when we were you know later teens, but VB cans. It's amazing now. Like there's the choice. I did some stand up. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Like, it was just always VB cans, you know? Um, maybe if you drank Melbourne or Carlton, that was a bit kind of ooh la la. <laughs> that was, the, you know, to, to set your cans apart when they were thrown in the bathtub, maybe. <laughs> you know, so you, people were knocking off your VBs. But, um, yeah, there's like 50,000 beers now. Oh, man, sometimes you go to, in the, into, um, into bit, uh, you know, pubs and there's on tap and you, you don't even recognise one of them. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's kind of great, but. Sometimes you just want a Carlton, pot of Carlton. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, you have pots in Melbourne. I remember finding out that the beers I've been drinking in Brisbane were called a completely different thing Yeah. Uh, in, uh, in other parts of this country. My, my, my big lesson to that was coming to Sydney at my first stand-up tour um, outside of Melbourne, and I did the Herald Park. And I, one of the first jokes I did, in fact, it was the very first joke I did, um, and it was... Um, the joke goes like this: It goes, I had a I had a bad start to the week. I walked into a fish and chip shop the other day and accidentally ordered maximum chips. Now, if you're in Melbourne, that's really funny because you always go in and order minimum chips. So the idea of ordering maximum chips, and I would go on and say it was twelve hundred dollars worth of chips. You know, I got home and there's a thousand seagulls and two drunk fat guys dressed like seagulls who you know, wanted the chips. And let that joke, that joke, has become a little bit of like. Amongst comedians, like Will, yeah, and yeah, and the guys who came through with me, they always kind of remember that joke, and it's like it becomes. We all have jokes that are kind of we kind of are synonymous with us, yeah. You know, we just within the group, and that one got tied tied uh, with me, and it was a really good first joke. But now I came to Sydney, and I've, you've only got your twenty five minutes, maybe, you know, by that stage. It's about I've been doing it for maybe a year, and. Um, First joke, I thought I'm just going to do the classic. Yeah. Walked on stage, maximum chips, nothing, <laughs> not a single. There wasn't even anyone from Melbourne in the audience. Oh. I just didn't, I didn't know. Like, of course, yeah. they ordered fish and chips differently up here. Yeah. They don't order maximum chips. They just order dollar fifty of chips or, yeah. or, or big chips or whatever it was. <laughs> and that was a lesson of, yeah, we're all in the same country, but things are a little different everywhere. Yeah. You mentioned, because uh, I'm, I'm always fascinated uh, with not only how school was and how school um, shapes people, but also the group of people that you move through your career with. So how early on did that core group of people form? Because the, you were a part of something that hasn't happened really again. Yeah, it, it's, it's been... I reckon we'll look back at this last couple of years and I reckon you, we'll be able to identify a group um, that have come through. Um, Celia Pacola, Luke McGregor... Nick Cody um, at Edmonds. Um, I think there's a really good group um, coming through. Joel Creasy, you know, um, and but as far as that tight, but yeah, yeah, I think it was a really special time. There was a room called Elbow Grease, um, which ran out of the Nicholson's Hotel, in Nicholson Street in Carlton, in Melbourne, and 
is run by a guy, a comic called Jed Wood, and it was a Sunday night, and we just all wanted to be uh, on uh, that room. And the SB was on during the day, so you'd do the SB during the day, then you'd maybe go and do Elbow Grease that night. And it was um, a typical lineup would be um, Will Anderson, Rove, Michelle Laurie, me, Adam Richard, uh, Husey, American Rosso, um, Corinne Grant. Every one of these people are household names. Yeah, it, it, it's 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 really. Um, I'm really glad that I reckon everyone who was really into it and really worked hard got their opportunity. You know, um, you know Lawrence Mooney. Um, you know, and and Lawrence has had a great you know last couple of years particularly. You know, and I think it's um, yeah, and it's, it was just really great. And it was a really it was like a competitive. We had there was a competitive nature to it, but. It was really friendly. Like we wanted everyone to be better. We wanted the industry to be good. We wanted to be, you know, one of the best comedians in a really strong industry. And um, we were always very thankful and respectful for people who had carved, the, you know, paved the way. Um, Greg Fleet, Rod Quantock, Anthony Morgan, Judith Lucy. Um, yeah, I mean, Judith Lucy's still, I think, the best comedian in the country. Um, but yeah, to be able to go there and kind of go. Me and Will have spoken about it a bit. Um, like when Princess Diana died, you just knew you had to go to Elbow Grease and do a joke because, you know, Will was going to do one and I wanted mine to be better than Will's, you know. And it was, it was just, that's the way it was. Um, and you knew you had to be doing, you know, a new five, you couldn't just strike up with the same gear as last week because, you know, because Rove was going to do some new, so you couldn't do some new. And it was... Um, and we would all watch each other. It wasn't like you did a gig in the sleeve. You'd watch each other. We'd go back to the punters club and drink filthy plastic pots. And it was just an exciting time because I was just getting, you know, you're just getting into something and you're meeting new people who are like-minded. I said to my son recently, he was in a, a production of Hating Alison Ashley. And he just, it, he had a very small role. And it made him so happy. He had a lot of anxiety about it. Um, he missed the first few rehearsals, and he's, he got so he worked himself up so much that he didn't. When I went to drop him off, he didn't want to get out of the car. Mm. He was just like literally in the car, saying, I, "I don't want to do it. I can't do it." I was like, "Mate, you have to. They're relying on you. You know, if you don't go this week, it's going to be worse next week. Just get out of the car." And I watched him. His two brothers were in the back, and he, he got out of the car and he walked across the road. and He went in. And I said to my, my to other boys, "I said, you just seen your brother do a really brave thing." Um, there's different kinds of bravery and what he did was really brave and it just afterwards he just was just high on life he was so happy and the, the whole the rehearsals just just loved every minute of it and he did the production it went great you know and I said to him I said why, why do you know I said you've been so happy doing the production you know what is it what, what do you love about it he goes I just he just I'm just so happy when I'm there and I said well mate I said that's what life's about if you can find what makes you happy and do that and work at that and become good at that, then you're halfway there. Um, and I said also, if you surround yourself with like-minded people, that's a big key. Because that's... I've got my, my friends from school and they're, they're, we're, we're really tight. You know, but I've got this bunch of people who I've met and I still continue to meet in the industry that I work in that I love getting to know and I, you know, we have these, these shared common experience, especially stand-up comedians. Like, it's a very small percentage of people who've been able to do it, you know. Like, lo- lots of people might get up and, 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 and you know, tell jokes and some 
you know, some might do it for a year and, you know, never leave their jobs to actually try to do it properly full time. But to actually do it at a certain level, it's a very small club. So I think there's always a, a respect it's just, you know, amongst us. Um, that can sometimes amongst some people be a bit snobby, you know, like sometimes there's some comedians who, who look down on, like stand-up comedians who look down on comedians who don't do stand-up. So they're not real comedians. I said, well, they are. Well, Hamish and Andy are comedians. They're not stand-ups. You know, they, I think they could very easily do stand-up. Um, and, I'm, 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 and I'm not saying there's necessarily an attitude towards them because I think they're, they're, they're really, really well-liked and respected. Um, but sometimes it can get a bit snobby in that regard. Who was the first one of you out of that gang of, of five or six of you that started to pull ahead or start to create something new well, Around or that time, American Rosso were doing these great shows at the Prince Patrick Hotel in Collingwood, um, and they were like concerts. You know, they were... They had this um, overhead projector. They called Fonzie. They brought out Fonzie, the overhead projector, and they would write letters... Obviously, it was all done before the show. You know, weeks before the show, they would write to, like, Ray Martin. And they would read out the letter that they wrote. It was like, Dear Ray, you are amazing. I like your hair. Do you like cricket? Who's your favourite footballer? Why are oranges so nice? Do you like my life? You know, like, it was just, like, weird. And then, like, and then, so they would read out the letters and they were just piercing themselves laughing. And then they would uh, they'd go, and... Ray wrote back. <laughs> they right. put up a letter, and they would put on the overhead projector the um, the letter, and it would you know be like an official Channel Nine letter typed, you know, you know, it'd be like, "Dear Timmy, thanks for your letter. I do like my life." <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like people were like, and it felt like everyone was in this gang, and it, it kind of taught me a bit about. I think sometimes with comedy, it, it's great. If you can be a comic on stage and people in the audience are going, I wouldn't mind having a beer. I'd love to have a beer with him. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a pretty strong and cool thing. Yeah. American Russell had it in spades. And they were kind of a bit, they worked a little bit outside the industry. They were kind of, you know, the, the, the festival, I don't think particularly embraced them. The Melbourne International yeah. Comedy Festival, yeah. And, and often comedians weren't, wouldn't go to their shows. Like, often I'd look around and be like me... Brad Oaks and Greg Fleet at their shows. Um, so I knew Merrick. I'd met Merrick through a mutual friend. I was doing a community radio show and Merrick came on. And so I kind of got to know him a little bit through uh, them. We, we kind of grew up roughly in the, in the same area of Melbourne. Um, and uh, so I'd start going to their shows and then they would, they would ask me to support them. So I'd, I was doing like 20-minute support slots uh, on, their, on their shows and it was just... It was amazing. Yeah. And they, they did Triple J. Uh-huh. And they were getting, you know, quite big in that time. And, and they got me to do this segment, Peter Halley PI. Mm. And uh, would, they would set me a challenge. And it kind of culminated in this uh, thing we did called Bevan the Musical, where um, they said, we want you to write a musical about Bevan from Young Talent Time. Yes. And uh, so one night at the, fe- the Melbourne Comedy Festival was on, so... Uh, my good mate Gatesy from Tripod, I just said, mate, I've got to do this musical. Do you want, do you want to do it? And it's, and it's going to be about Bevan. So we're just going, okay, well, uh, there's, um, um, you know, Bevan is a place on earth, uh, slice of Bevan. We just, just kept trying to go with all these songs with Be- uh, Heaven in the title. And um, and we kind of, you know, basically thought of it and then we wrote it the next day and we performed it and it ended up 
getting to I think number thirty five in the Triple J Hottest One Hundred. You know, I think Silverchair was thirty six or something. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, it was, um, and we performed it a couple of times, and Bevan would come out, and I still don't think I've had a, had a moment on stage where I've, I've heard a bigger cheer when you know we would bring him out halfway through the song, and um, yeah, the actual Bevan, the actual Bevan, yeah, the actual Bevan. Right. What was, was wild? Like I grew up in Brisbane, and in Brisbane, the Brisbane name at the time it's changed now because so many Victorians moved to Queensland. But at the time, time the Brisbane name for a bogan was yeah, Bevan. Yeah, yeah, so And so th- there was a kid on the t- on Young Talent Time every week <laughs> called Bevan with this big blowwave hair and lemon slacks. Oh. <laughs> Did he work up at like Hamilton Island as the entertainment director or something like that? Now? Something like that. I think he was repping. I think for Sony, perhaps, um, around that time as well. Wow. Um, that's all ahead of us, mate. But Mez, yeah, it is. <laughs> but Mez and, and Tim were, um, they were the one, the first ones. Mez and Tim, yeah, were breaking were, away. They yeah. were the first ones. Yeah, and, and they took me under their wing. Uh-huh. And Rosso gave me the best bit of advice. And I, I kind of tried to pass this on to anyone who asks, is that comedy's about ideas. You know, it's, um, it can be, you know, so I say to people, have ideas for jokes, have ideas for TV shows, have ideas for sketches, have ideas for books, have ideas for everything, podcasts, yeah, whatever. Just have ideas, yeah, um, because ideas will be will probably end up defining you more than your jokes will. Wow, I like that. Mm. That's good. Thanks, man. That's, I'll tell Rosso when I see you. <laughs> <laughs> well, the last bit is me. What I said, um, uh, yeah, that, that that you'll be defined by your ideas more than your jokes. But yeah, that was all, all came from Rosso upstairs at the Prince Pat. He said, "Wow, comedy's about ideas." Yeah, he's, he's right. When did obviously you know it happened with Powderfinger when Powderfinger got signed? I oh, know when Silverchair got signed. Everyone went, "Oh shit, we need a band that's got hair and grungy guitar." So everyone came searching. Um, um, Powderfinger got signed uh, to Polydor at the time, and then so everyone was like, "Well, we need a Powderfinger now." And so people start looking in the same area. So all of a sudden, Brisbane, I was playing in bands at the time, was flooded with all these people looking to find yeah. you know, bands and we'd be going out to dinner and shit like that. Were there people then searching, mining this troop of, of, yeah. of six or seven of you going yeah. for breakfast radio gigs? All or? of a sudden, it became... Um, comedy became a pretty valid career choice. Mm-hmm. Um, what were you doing for money at the time? I was working at a bottle shop, um, Dan Murphy's in Elfington, um, uh, that was at the time the biggest bottle shop in the Southern Hemisphere. I was cutting uh, boxes uh, and hiding in the warehouse writing jokes. Um, I saw my bosses at a corporate gig hosting uh, uh, a week ago and uh, my old boss was there and he kind of came up. He took a photo and sent it to another a mate of mine who worked at Dan Murphy's as well and he got, he kind of he, he kind of uh, worked his way up the chain to, to upper management and he sent him a photo and he's going, wow, he's come a long way from Dan Murphy's. <laughs> um, and, yes, yeah, so I was doing that and they were really good. They kind of, The guy, one of the managers at the time was in a band so he kind of understood gig life, you know, like yeah. if I had to get away a bit early, he would, you know, he'd, he'd let me in. Um, or if I had to gig that night, he would, you know, kind of, you know, not hunt me down when I was, you know, hiding amongst you know, boxes of booze, uh, writing jokes. But, um, yeah, that's what I was doing. And then, I, and then I started, I left that to do the Rove pilot, but I was kind of, you know, getting enough money by doing gigs and, yeah. and the occasional corporate. Um, How did the Rove pilot come together? It was, uh, it was funny. One night we all went out. Um, it was like me, 
Will Anderson, Miss Itchy, who were like, had won lots of awards around that time. Uh, it was Faye Younger and Linda Hager, and a hilarious, like, chaotic, anarchy kind of. It was uh, you know, an amazing show. Um, and they were awesome, and uh, still are awesome. Um, and uh, maybe Adam Richard, I think, was there as well. And we just went out for a drink. It was later in the year. And I was like the younger, you know, the, the youngest of this bunch and, and the newer as well. And one by one, each of them over the night, I'd go to the bathroom, I'd come back and one of them would take me aside and say, listen, I've got this show, it's going to pilot. Um, and, you know, I'd love you to come on and write for it or, you know, maybe be on it, you know, see where it goes. Like Will had a show, I think it was going to be called The Anderson Files or The Anderson Tapes. Um, Miss Itchy had a show, the ABC. They were so hot at that time that they, you know, they just you know, had their own like variety show. Maybe Adam, or if it wasn't Adam, it was somebody else that said, you know, I got, I got a little something, you know, just, you know, I'm going I'm to keep you in mind. I was like, cool. The only person that didn't say anything was Rove. And I was driving that night and I dropped Rove home. And Rove said, I know, you must have overheard one or two of these conversations. He said, listen, I know a few people have approached you about working on some shows. I said, I've got something that is genuinely happening. And he wasn't kind of saying that these other shows won't. Um, and I think it's going to happen soon. Just don't sign anything until we've spoken. I was like, okay, cool. And like Rove was my, uh, that, that bunch, my, the, my, probably my closest friend that we'd become close, really close. Yeah. Um, and then, like, a week or two later, I got a phone call and my manager, Kev, said, I think this is the phone call you've been waiting for. Um, uh, Rove's doing a show on Channel 9. He, he wants you to come on and be a cast member and writer and contributor. And, and yeah, so a couple of weeks later, I was, you know, Channel 9. It was, just like, it was like Disneyland for us because it was, it was like a, Channel 9 at that time was set up in Melbourne like, like the old kind of studio system in the States. Or yeah. the studio system, it still is now in a way. The Warner Brothers, like, where you just had these bungalows yeah. where the shows work from and then you've got the studios there mm. and to, I remember writing a, um, a sketch um, uh, called Making uh, it was Making Babies Cry and it was a game show where the, they had a baby and the contestants had to make the baby cry it was a, it was a silly idea but um, and I did it and then they would build a, build a set so you write it and then like the next week you walk onto this, this stage and there was a set built I was like, wow. So then my imagination just went, you know, what I started like writing sketches. 23? Yeah, 23, yeah. Wow. So I started writing, you know, sketches in German and like having with explosions as a, as a sketch called uh, Would I Lie to You? So I did a segment called From the Vault where we pretended to find these old TV shows. Um, and there's one called, yeah, Would I Lie to You? And it's about this guy, Dave Callan, was playing in these like, you know, the um, what's the German Lederhausen or what's, yeah. the, what's the Lederhausen? Is the Lederhausen like the, is the ones with the the leather shorts with the overalls. Yeah, so he's in the, the Bavarian yeah. beer hall. Look. <laughs> yeah. So he's in Lederhausen with his you know big beard, and he's strapped to this chair, and Corinne Grant's you know uh, looking like the German milkmaid kind of you know with a mega horn. He's, Dave's just sitting in an empty field, and she's yelling out these questions in German. I'm I'm in this, in this like glittery jacket, and we're all speaking in German. We had to learn German for it. I learned. Corinne learned it really well. Dave learned it pretty well. No, it was terrible, but, you know, this kind of became funny. But it was all subtitled. And Corinne was, like, yelling out these questions to Dave, like, would you, you know, have you been unfaithful? And Dave would answer, and then, like, basically it ends up with him exploding because he, he, he lied. Um, and we, sh- we shot out at Point Cook in this, you know, this, this paddock. And I was just like, oh, this is amazing. Like, 
I've put something on paper and other people go away and make it better and I build it and, and it just like and still to this day I mean I made a, I was lucky enough to make a movie and it's just like um, yeah you write something and then you you know it, it, it made me love collaborating you know yeah. and, and you can you know like the best idea in the room wins for me and, and, and you know you, you can write something whether it's a book and I've like I said I've written a kids book and, and I've got a great editor and, and an illustrator and they, they've just made it better yeah. they've made it so much better than it was and uh, the movie got better because uh, it was directed by Dana Reed and she had you know ideas and um, you know, guided me through and great producers you know Laura Waters and Yale Bergman who you know produced Chris Lilly stuff and you know, you know amazing um, so it's I've just always loved that, it, it, and it take, you always remember that that blank page when I was a kid, looking at that blank page, thinking, "What can I put on that?" And then that was almost like the, the full circle moment of coming yeah. around at Channel Nine, going, "Okay, what's the blank page? I'm going to put something on it, and then watch it come to life." What's the um, What's the thought process behind the best idea in the room wins? Because I've been in writers' rooms when people push for their thing to get in, even though mm. it's not the funniest, and it's always uncomfortable. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I writers' rooms are uh, interesting things. I mean, I think, and I've been in good writers' rooms and bad writers' rooms. I the first job I had was writing for Totally Full Frontal, and um, and everyone was on like a minute system, so it means you had to basically come up. You were paid to produce two minutes of of content for that per episode, and some people would be on six minutes if they'd been there for longer and and all of that. So. So everyone was basically just trying to get their minutes up. And you could, if you did extra minutes, you got paid extra. So what would happen is somebody would come up with a recurring character or a recurring joke, and then everyone would else jump on it and then kind of, you know, add to their minutes. You know, so it was kind of it didn't feel like the most team orientated way to do things. Um, the writers' rooms I work in these days, there's a writers' room at the project, and they're great, and I, but they kind of work, and I'll drop in and you know chat to them and, and just. More to be social than anything else, but they kind of you know operate off their own steam, and they they seem to all get along and, and all work together. The writers' rooms I am mostly involved in uh, recently have been with it to date, and that worked in that I handpicked a collaborator, a writer, and they would come in. We would discuss an idea that I had, and we would for a day we would um, turn it. Uh, into uh, the bones of an episode, then we'd get the actors in, talk them through if they wanted to add any experiences or any ideas. We would take them on. We would go away for a week, write the episode, bring the actors back, have a read through. Uh, it was a really great way, great way to work. We had people like John Wood, you know, industry veteran, who just said, "I've never worked like this before. It's amazing." You know, actors are never. You know, he's worked on Blue Healers, where you know it, it's. Be, I imagine it becomes a bit of a machine where mm. it's just like, here's the script and you know, yeah. we, we need to churn this out. Um, so that's been great. But it's, you need a strong, what they call in the States, I guess, a showrunner, whoever's running the room to kind of you know, uh, handle those egos. And, um, and sometimes there can, there can be conjecture, conjecture about what is the best joke. You know, sometimes I'll say, listen, let's just have both of them and we'll, we'll, we'll ship both and we'll see what wins in, in the edit you know um, um, but yeah if, if you if you're a writer and you're in a writer's room you do need to let go of ideas and if it's a good joke there's no reason you can't use it somewhere else you know mm. if it's that good a joke you can, you can fabricate another reason to get it you know in another script do you remember a time in your life where 
I guess if you're a guitar player or a violinist or a piano player, there's a moment where the muscle memory just takes over and you're no longer thinking about where your fingers are going. Do you remember a time in your life when you didn't have to think so hard about where the, where the funny was? Um, like when you just got to fly going, oh, even though I'm improving, I know I'm working here, I'm firing well. Like you're talking about day-to-day life or you're talking about like... No, uh, like when you're in the moment. Yeah, because day-to-day life I don't think about it at all. And I, I think, you know, um, I... Yeah, I just don't, I don't think about it. But on stage, no, it, it's, it's, never, it's never muscle memory until the show's up and going. Mm-hmm. Like the first few shows, you are thinking a lot. And then the more shows you do, particularly if they're back-to-back, you can mm. just, you can just, I could almost literally arrive, arrive at the venue, go from the car, not break stride, walk on stage and do the show. Mm. Um, and that takes, you know, maybe a couple of weeks of doing it, you know, back-to-back. And, but you, then you have to have to make sure you are not getting complacent mm. and and um, you know you're still trying to improve the show and I made a real conscious effort this year to never let the show settle mm-hmm. so I would I would change things around change mm-hmm. the order around um, which would affect callbacks and all kinds of things so I'd have to come up with new ways to get myself out of trouble uh-huh. um, and and sometimes I'd make that dis- decision before I walked on stage sometimes it'd be in the moment right um and sometimes my brain just does that. It'll be like, I'll be, you know, 15 minutes in and I, my brain just goes, let's do the closer now. Huh. And so you do the last the show, the, the, the routine, especially the last, the last routine. Yeah, 15 minutes in, you still got <laughs> 40 minutes to go by the time that routine's finished. You go, okay, let's enjoy this challenge. Well, yeah, I'm cool. in the moment, I'm here. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of stand-up, sometimes they'll, they'll have the opening, they'll have their maximum chips and then yeah, they, they yeah, have yeah. the last 10 and they know their last 10 is going to absolutely destroy and they know exactly how it's going to end and sometimes in the middle, that's where they try out some new stuff. But if you're taking your last 10, you know, that's like playing, I don't know, uh, You Give Love a Bad Name, Blaze of Glory and then ending with Bad Medicine. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but yeah. at, in the middle of the show... You're coming out with Hotel California rather than saving it for the end. <laughs> yeah, it's it's and you, you it makes you a bit nervous because you're kind of going. Just, I'm not even sure how this affects everything else, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure if the routine, you know, about the iCloud is strong enough to bring this this this, uh, <laughs> this, uh, this show home. You know, so but that's what I like because sometimes when you do get settled into a show, yeah. you do need to find something to kind of keep you. I think once you're on stage, you're generally yeah, engaged because the audience, yeah. you know, it's such a great feeling on stage and, and, um, and the audience, it feels different each, each, episode, you know, yeah. each, each, uh, each show. Um, something always happens, you know, um, that makes it different. And that's, what, that's what's great about seeing stand-up live, you know, as much as, you know, we'll be streaming it, you know, you can stream it now and see so many different kinds of stand-up shows mm. on YouTube or, you know, streaming it. But, but to be there in the room knowing... Knowing that this is happening right here, right now, is is incredible, mm. and that goes you know with live music and yeah. And well, your, your well. live TV is the same as well. You, yeah, you need to work on live TV every night. What do you like about the project? Uh, I love it because it is live, and um, there's there's no safety net. Um, the only safety net we have is in Perth. If something goes terribly wrong, we can edit because it goes away like an hour or two later in Perth. So occasionally, Perth may get an edit if something if somebody says somebody a bit legally dubious or something, you know. Um, but no, I love it. Uh, yeah, because it's live. I've done shows where they've been pre-recorded and they go they go forever and they're laborious 
and there's like three hour records mm. and it's just like oh my god and then I watch them back and I'm like I can see I can see where the edit <clears throat> pardon me I can see where the edits are and I'm not sure how anyone finds this entertaining mm-hmm. um, and that's what's kind of great about having been paying attention as well I think they that's not live but they um, they edit that uh, to make it it's really reflective of what the mood was like when you when you when you record it. Mm. Um, uh, so that's a really fun show to do. Um, uh, and the projects, I mean, you know, you spoke about this explosion of the stand-ups in the, ni- in the late nineties when I was coming through early two thousands. And the, yeah, you're right. People were coming. You know, they were giving out radio shows. They were giving out panel shows. Um, the comedians, um, tonight shows, and and now there's not. There's not those, you know, that yeah. many shows around. The panel shows have kind of yeah. died off a little bit, um, and uh, there's not a Tonight Show around. Mm. Uh, we're probably the closest that there is to the Tonight Show when you got like yeah. a visiting, you know, celeb yeah. movie star. Um, the best chance to probably see him uh, is is on the project. You know, if you're, if you're not getting up to watch morning um, morning television, and it's great because like, Amy Schumer comes out and. Yeah, she copped a bit of flack for not being what people wanted her to be. I think people went in with expectations, and um, and uh, and this went. She's sitting in a hotel room, with, you know, in a junket. But what what they what people don't quite appreciate is how hard they worked. By the way, like they arrived, her and Bill Hader, and just Bill Hader had a, an inflected reaction the day he got to Australia, and then was had to still do, do all the press. They were their, their eyes were falling out of their heads, you know, and um, and they did a lot of press, and then they come to the project, I think the second night. But the great thing about the project, we've got a live audience, mm. so Amy Schumer comes out, and you know, probably tired, and you know, and comes out, and all of a sudden peps up, and this mm. was brilliant, you know, and that's our, I think I think our live audience is our secret weapon. I remember when the show started, Hughesy rang me and said. Like, they're not going to have a studio audience, mate. You know, you think that's shit out? So, like, you think I should fight for it? And I was like, oh, well, I didn't really know what show was about. So I was, mm. like, oh, I don't know. Like, I'm not. But if you if you think it's important, then you should try. Mm. You can, things can always change. I mean, the show's changed a lot. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Matho was on, and Ruby mm. Rose was one of the original cast members. Um, and but they went to the studio audience, and thank God they did because um, it's not just good for us on each night. Because mm. I say to the audience, I said, when we come in here, it's a pretty cold room. Sometimes we're tired. Sometimes we'll say to each other, "Geez, I can't be fucked doing the show tonight." <laughs> and then the audience comes in at you know, t- you know twenty five past six, and it just gives us mm. you know this you know as you know you know I mean yeah. Um, I'm aware that you have to go and have lunch, uh, mm. so I, I just want to kind of get up with this, I guess. Uh, I've only been a parent for about two and a half years now. Yeah. Um, uh, Gigi was 10 when I met her. She's about to turn 13. Um, has made me, as I'm sure it has made you, look at the world very differently. Mm. And, you know, I, I now, <coughs> I, I can't watch some news stories. I used to not care about some things, but some things I just can't bear. Yeah. Um, some movies and TV shows, I, all of a sudden I'm finding tears in my eyes. Oh, man. I cried in The Tooth Fairy with The Rock. Oh, he's um, so good. Yeah. There's a few uh, movies I've cried. Toy Story in. 3, man. Oh, oh well, that's... In I mean, the incinerator scene? You don't, you don't have to have kids to cry in that movie, I wouldn't, I wouldn't suspect, uh, but... Uh, when, you, you're, when you're just exposed every day, and I've, I've done the project a few times, it's my dream job. You're more than welcome to tell Craig. Um, <laughs> I've hosted it a few times, please God. Uh, 
there's that 11 o'clock meeting and then there's a 3 o'clock meeting. Day after day after day after day, producers are coming in with the most, you know, visible stories of, yeah. the, of the world. It can be pretty, like, grim. Yeah, yeah. What do you, what do you make of the world at the moment when you are so exposed to so much of what's happening? Carrie started doing this segment on a Thursday called uh, The Good News Story, and she... Um, and it's just about all the good news stories that are out there. Mm. And it's, you know, it's, you know, you, you could say it's just a bit of fluff, you know, but it's become all of our favourite segment of the week because it, you do need to remind yourself there are good people out there doing really good things. And sometimes they're little things, you know, like organising a, you know, a celebrity rocking up to a, a school prom or something, you know, or, yeah. or but, you know, there's... Um, a, a whole neighbourhood who brought Christmas three months uh, forward three months because the lady was, was uh, one of their neighbours was dying, you know, and, and um, a, a guy the other night who um, his wife died in, in, in uh, childbirth and he found he stumbled upon these files on the computer and they were music files but he didn't know how to open them so he kind of put the word out, you know, on, on, online and can anyone help me open these files and, and they some people you know this helped him and. Um, and he found these these songs that his wife had recorded without him knowing, and now he you know he, the ba- his uh, his baby goes to sleep listening to these his mother wow. singing the mother that he yeah. he or she never knew um, singing it you know, in the sleep. Yeah. So um, I, I really like to sing because it just remind me. And we do have you know throughout the week still stories. We do try to balance it. Um, I've become a lot more depressed about the state. Of, of this country, you know, um, um, I've seen some pretty vicious stuff, um, both that it's gone to air and, and that we haven't put to air, and also the way that some uh, you become a bit more aware of the way some people are treated and the abuse um, that people who are doing good work get. Um, uh, the treatment of women, you know, in this country is is, is abhorrent, um, both. The, Domestic violence and this, the, the trolling, um, you know, it's it's that depresses me. Um, mm. I mean, I couldn't love this country anymore, but I, the state of the state of it, I, I'm, you know, I sometimes have to just like put it aside and try to go. You know, we're not driven by politics. Politics is whatever. You know, they're just there to kind of make sure that you know we can, you know, the country pays its bills and that's mm. all. But it's still it's depressing. It's depressing. So. I have to. That's and that's why. But it's your job to save us from that, Pete. I know, and I, you, try, uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> and I try to bring levity, you know, uh, and, and to this. And sometimes people go, "Oh, not having a serious conversation," and then you did a joke, and it's like, "Well, yeah, that's kind of my job because yeah. the theory behind the show is, and it's, it's, don't think of it as me saying it's about me. Think of it as me saying about that chair, whoever it's Hughesy was sitting on it, or whatever comedian sits in that chair. And the idea of the show is that we make it palatable. So you can watch it. So it's not. Yeah. It is news delivered differently. You yeah. know. The, you know. Peter Oven Oven doesn't do a gag at the end of uh, mm. uh, his his um, news bulletins. Um, we we do. So often the interviews are edited. We record them. You know, like about forty five minutes before the show. And um, so sometimes we might be a discussion, and I do a joke at the end. And it seems like maybe I've abruptly kind of uh, got a joke in, but it's all you know. It's usually always um, timely. Um, but it, yeah, it's it's a good job to have. I love mm. it um, to be able to you know. And I've, you know, I can be sincere. They've allowed me the um, the space to be sincere and you know s- 
serious at times. Yeah. You know, if, if you know, if the because uh, I, I didn't want it just to be that the guy at the end can only do do jokes. You know, and they were keen for me to expand it a little bit in that role. And, and um, with that said, my primary focus is to get gags in. Well, mate, your, your, your politics teacher was absolutely right and couldn't be more right in our industry because if the joke's good, you can stay. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. I think, yeah, Ross Smith, uh, he probably was uh, laying the foundations for my... Thank for you, my, Smithy. Yeah, for my life on the project. I'm going to let you go, man. You've got to go have lunch. Mate, thanks so much. I feel like I've spoken a lot, uh, but um, hopefully... That's the show. That, that's, that's okay for that's a podcast. What, that's, what, that's what I do. Thanks, mate. Well, I'm so glad you came, and I'm glad you're in shorts. I feel more relaxed. It's just two men in shorts. Two men in shorts. Well, I've, it's kind of my weekend now. So having a conversation. Having a chat. <laughs> Mate, always, seriously, always great to chat. I'm not sure if you ever have return guests, but if you, if, you know, I'll, I'll happily, you know. Well, when you fix Craig, get me back on the project. Yeah. <laughs> well, get me on your Friday crew. I'd love to do your Friday shows. Yeah, you should. That'd be fun. Well, maybe you get Craig on the podcast. And just... <laughs> <laughs> That'd be good. Get Craig on the show. Yeah. All right, I'm going to take your photo real quick. All yeah, right, let's do okay, it. Okay, cool. And that was Peter Hellier. That's the show. Find him on Twitter at P-J-H-E-L-L-I-A-R. Let him know that you heard him here on the show. Let him know what you thought. Um, and if you like the show, you can always support on Patreon, patreon.com slash O-S-H-E-R. Or you could just tell a friend, show someone how to download this podcast on their phone. That always does an incredible thing. And, you know, numbers jump every time I say that. So I'll say that. Um, if you're in Brisbane, I'll see you on the 26th. You come and find me. You won't be able to miss me. I'll be there. And let's, you know, let's stand together. Let's make our country great again. Or greater. Or great as it can be. That's more like it. Let's make let's try to make our country as great as it can be. There we go. That's more like it. Oh, big change just came in here at Bribey. The wind's just really picked up. The palm trees are going. The kettle's just boiling. It's gonna be a good day. Love you. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you on Thursday. Sleep well dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>